If you have a a Bible, I invite you to open up to uh, the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. So please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah." For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, um, as we do each and every Sunday, we just ask that you would come and and speak to us, that we need your help, Lord. We delight that you have spoken in your word and through your Son, and as we um, see the glory of your Son on display in this passage, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to a deeper and greater longing for an eternity in your presence. God, as we see in this passage, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, to see Jesus as as beautiful and glorious as he truly is. Bless this time in your word this morning, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we read that passage this morning, what is it that comes to mind? Some of it is kind of hard to grasp, isn't it? The story of the transfiguration. In these verses this morning, some people see what they believe is a reason or evidence for why the Christian faith is a sham, verse 1, and we'll talk about that here in a, in a moment. Others look at this story of the transfiguration and they say, well, this doesn't really fit in the Bible uh, because it doesn't really describe or, or speak about Jesus uh, the way the rest of the, the Gospels do. That it's, It sounds too mythological, it sounds too fanciful for it to be real. And, and to be clear, this is a, a very unique event in the Gospels. Uh, it's, it's clear even just by reading verse 3 here, if, you, if you're following along in your Bible. Verse 3, it seems like Mark is, is like searching. He, he's, he's failing in his search, but he's searching for the right words to describe what these disciples have witnessed here on the Mounts of Transfiguration. And we're going to look at these, these two questions, this question of, well, is this actually a text or, or is it just too mythical, mythological um, or is it too fanciful? Is this, what actually happened here? We're going to, we're going to look at, at verse 1 and, and why the, the arguments that, well, verse 1 proves that, that Christianity is a lie. Um, we're going to look at that. But before we do, I, I think a lot of these questions will be answered just by understanding where the story of the transfiguration comes in the context of the gospel of Mark as a whole, specifically over the last two weeks as we've been working our way through the gospel of Mark. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, two weeks ago, we looked at the high point of the gospel of Mark, Mark 8, 27 through 33. In those verses, we have the answer that Mark has been leading us toward for the entire gospel up to this point. This question is, who is Jesus? And let's personalize it. Who do you say that Jesus is? And for eight chapters, he's been talking about this answer, uh, this implication of all that Jesus has done. It's what is on the lips of of Peter in verse 29 of of Mark chapter 8. Jesus is the Christ. 
Jesus is the Messiah. Another way of describing this is, or saying this is Jesus is God's long-awaited chosen king. And then immediately after that, in verse 31 of chapter 8, after this confession that Jesus is the Christ, we see Jesus begin to explain what exactly that means. What does it mean that he is God's long-awaited chosen king? It doesn't mean his immediate exaltation. It actually means his eventual execution. It does not mean the slaughter of the Roman rulers. It actually means that Jesus will be slaughtered by the Roman rulers. Jesus tells us this crazy truth about the kingdom of God. If Jesus will be crowned king, it will only take place through the cross. And then the next few verses right after that, Mark 8, 34 through 38, are just as hard for us to swallow. Jesus has just said, I, as the chosen king, am going to the cross, and if anyone would follow me, they also must take up a cross. Far from living a life of of ease and luxury, if you will follow me, you must deny yourself. Jesus tells anyone who would follow him, I will not share your allegiance. If you would follow me, you must nail the old self to the cross. If you would be a part of my kingdom, then you must walk this same road that I, Jesus, am walking. A crown awaits, but it only comes through carrying your own cross. As we come to this morning's passage, six days have passed from Jesus' very, very hard-to-hear words for the crowd. Jesus and, and his disciples, they've retreated to this mountain, and he takes three of those disciples, three of his closest friends, and he ascends this mountain uh, for this very special moment. And I think if we were to sum up the, the focus of this passage, it would simply be this. Jesus is exactly who he says he is. That's the point of the transfiguration. It is to assure us that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. So let's walk through this passage in three steps, all focusing on the glory of Jesus. And after we walk through that, I want to just take a few moments to consider some implications from this text. So first, let's start with verses 1 through 3, focusing on Jesus' glory, specifically the unveiling of Jesus' glory. So this is an unveiling of Jesus' glory here in the transfiguration. Let's first just consider verse 1 by itself. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, a moment moment ago I just said that this takes place six days after Jesus' words to the crowds in verses 34 through 38 of Mark chapter 8. But the reality is, is this verse is actually the last thing that Jesus says to the crowds. So Jesus has, has just gotten done speaking about discipleship, about following him, about picking up your cross, denying yourself uh, of the, the great cost that it will be to, to follow him, and yet it is worth it in verses 34 through 38. And then, somewhat confusing because our uh, chapters, they split it there. Mark 9 verse 1 is the last thing that Jesus says to the crowds. Now, in the broader context of this passage, there's a reason why I've connected this, uh, this passage with um, this morning's text as opposed to last week's. Jesus is, is speaking to the crowds, and yet he's saying something that is, is difficult for us to understand. I, I mentioned many people see this verse as reason why the Bible is not true. And the reasoning goes like this. Jesus is talking about his second coming here, when, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God coming with power. And, and Jesus believes, according to this argument, Jesus believes that he is going to return at some point before his apostles die. Well, his last apostle, John, dies somewhere between 90 and, and 100 AD, roughly around that time time frame. And so, as skeptics will gleefully point out, Jesus is about 1,900 years too late. So, they look at this passage as saying, if Jesus can't be trusted about knowing when he is going to return, when this kingdom of God is going to come with power, then we can't trust Jesus, or we actually just can't trust the Bible in anything. 
There are a number of logical explanations for what Jesus means by this verse. When Jesus says, not all will taste death until the kingdom of God has come with power, he he could simply just be referring to Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit descend upon the early church, and it was a very powerful moment. People began speaking in tongues. The the entire nation, uh, excuse me, entire world, all these nations hear the message of the gospel at Pentecost. It's a very powerful moment. So that could be what Mark and Jesus are referring to here. It could be referring to this moment where where Jesus is is talking about his own resurrection. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is describing the most powerful moment in, in all of human history. And he says it's not creation. It's not when Israel crossed the Red Sea. The most powerful moment in all of, of history is the resurrection. So it could be that moment where the kingdom of God has come with power. Or, and this is my opinion, It could just be simply that Jesus is referring to the transfiguration. And that's why I've included this verse with our passage this morning, with verses 2 through 13. Uh, A couple reasons why I I think, or three reasons why I think that this is um, referring to the transfiguration. Uh, Let's go through these, just three. First, Jesus says that some of his disciples are going to see the kingdom of God come with power, but, but not all of them. And while it's technically true that Judas Iscariot dies before the resurrection, he dies before Pentecost, so so technically not all of his disciples will see resurrection, not all of his disciples will will see Pentecost, it seems like Jesus is saying something different than virtually all of you will see it except for the one who's going to betray me. That's one reason. Second reason, consider the verse that comes immediately after that, or after verse 1. Verse 2, the first four words says this, and after six days... This is significant because nowhere else in the Gospel of Mark is he concerned with specifics of time like this. Every other point in the Gospel of Mark, and with the exception of Jesus' resurrection after three days, every other point it's, and then this happened, or immediately this happened, or after that. But here he's referring to, and after six days. Now I think there's a, a second reason why he, he specifies the time frame here, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but it's also pretty clear that Mark is, is making this connection here. After six days, we will see the kingdom of God come with power. Of course, not all of us, because only three of the disciples ascend the mountain with Jesus. Third reason, consider the, the verse that is immediately before verse 1. The last verse of Mark chapter 8. What does Jesus say in verse 38? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What is Jesus speaking about here? He's he's speaking about the second coming, right? And he describes his, his return with these holy angels, but what else does he describe it as? The, the Son of Man is, is returning in the glory of his Father. And as we're soon going to see, this passage is all about glory. The transfiguration is all about glory. And so if we take it together, verse 38, verse 1, and then verse 2, it really kind of lays out something like this. Verse 38, Jesus speaks about his second coming, but specifically that he's coming in power and glory. And then verse 1, he says, hey, you know what? Some of you are actually going to see that power and glory, but not all of you are. And then verse 2, six days later, a a couple, three of his disciples see the kingdom of God coming in power, but not all of them. So this is is laying out here the glory of Jesus on display. In the broader context of Mark 8, Mark 9, I think the transfiguration is a a very helpful reminder for us and for for the church as as a whole that has been called just, just moments before this has been called to lay down their life for their king. And then we have this display of Jesus' power and glory and majesty. Jesus demands full and unwavering commitment from anyone who would follow after him, verses 34 through 38 of Mark chapter 8. And the natural question for us is to ask, could anyone possibly be worth that? Could anyone possibly be worth all that Jesus is demanding of his disciples? I confess that I sometimes 
wrestle with that in weak moments from time to time. And so God, in his incredible wisdom, immediately after telling us, put to death the self, pick up your cross and follow me, even before we can, can ask this question, is Jesus really worth it? Gives us the transfiguration. And we see the main focus of this passage is all about, yes, Jesus is worth it because Jesus is exactly who he says he is. So let's jump into the transfiguration itself and consider how these passages, starting in verse 2 and 3, how how it reveals Jesus in his glory. Starting in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Six days after Jesus' teaching on the high cost of discipleship with the crowds, he calls three of his disciples to ascend this high mountain with him. Luke's parallel, um, Luke chapter 9 is where the transfiguration is found in, in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's parallel tells us that they actually ascended the mountain to pray. And this high mountain is unnamed, uh, but most likely uh, because Jesus is still near Caesarea Philippi, most likely this is Mount Hermon, which is the the tallest mountain in that region. It is over 9,000 feet tall. It's snow-capped mountain all year round. And so Jesus, when he's talking about, or when it says he's going up a high mountain, he's going up to a very high mountain. Now, while Jesus and these three disciples are praying, which again is found in Luke chapter 9, something incredible happens at this moment. Jesus is transfigured. Now, that's a word we use all the time, right? We always use transfiguration, so we don't, we don't need to explain that, right? No, okay, I, I don't know about you. I, I don't really know what transfigured means. Uh, and so what exactly does it mean that Jesus is transfigured here. Well, Mark gives us a, a bit of a glimpse in verse 3 when in verse 3 he describes Jesus' clothes as radiant, or in other words, Jesus' clothes are actually beginning to glow with his intense white light. It's whiter than any person on earth could ever bleach them. Now, I'm going to say something that I mean with the, uh, the most respect as I possibly can here, but it seems as though Mark is stumbling through his words here in verse 3. He, he's, he's trying to communicate something, and, and language itself is just failing him here. Here's what I mean by that. Same thing happens to us when we see something incredibly beautiful, incredibly glorious um, in, in our own lives. So about 15 years ago, I went up to the Boundary Waters for about a week. I did, a, I did some camping up there. I was dumbfounded by the night sky and how, how beautiful it was. Now, I'm from a small town. Uh, I've, I've gone camping out in the wilderness in the woods before. I've, I've uh, gone stargazing. I, I'm not a victim of excessive light pollution. And yet, I was dumbfounded in being such a remote place and how clear the night skies were, how many stars there were. And I, and I come back from that trip, and people say, well, what was your favorite part? And I say, the night skies, without hesitation. It was the, the night skies. And, and I began to try to explain to them what I saw, and, and words could not convey the beauty, the majesty, the glory of what I had witnessed. Nothing came close, right? And the same thing happens to us when we see a particularly beautiful sunset or sunrise. And maybe you've, you've been witness to this. You, you see this sunset and you oh, I, I, this is so beautiful, I just want to take a picture of it. And you pull out your camera and you take a picture of it and you look at it and you say, man, that just doesn't do it justice. That's the exact same thing as, as our words. When we go to the Grand Canyon, we go to, the, to Niagara Falls, we, we've seen these pictures. We have this head knowledge of what we're about to experience, what we're about to encounter, but nothing can fully prepare us for what we experience. Nothing can help us to tell the truth of what we have, miss, uh, what we have witnessed. Now remember, Peter is the one who is telling Mark what to write down for his gospel, and, and Peter is, is here. Peter is a witness to this moment, and, and Peter, he's, he's thinking through decades later, and he's communicating to Mark what he should write down about the tra- transfiguration, and he's remembering this moment, and he still, after decades, has not found the right words to describe the majesty and the glory of what he saw that day. Now, verse 3 gives us a little glimpse of what Mark means when he describes Jesus as transfigured. But there's another place in the Bible that I think actually, it's, it's hinted at in verse 4, uh, another place in the Bible that gives us a fuller picture 
of what took place here in this moment. Now, like the accounts of the transfiguration, this, uh, this other passage also took place on a mountain. Like the accounts of the transfiguration, God speaks out of a cloud. Like the transfiguration, light represents glory. And like the transfiguration, Moses is there. What's the connection? Well, it's Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. And, and I, I say this very delicately, but the Mount of Transfiguration here in Mark 9 is, is meant to be a reenactment of Mount Sinai for the New Testament. Now, perhaps you're familiar with the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament, but if not, let me give you a brief re- recap. God's promised people, the Israelites, they're enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years, God hears the cries of his people, and he raises up Moses uh, to lead the people of Israel out of of slavery. And you probably know what happens next, the plagues, crossing of the Red Sea. Once they've escaped Egypt, they end up in this desert. And they eventually walk in this desert till they get to this mountain called Sinai. And the Israelites, they camp at the bottom of this mountain, and then God calls Moses up the mountain. He says, God, come up here, uh, and he says, bring three men. Well, there's another connection there, isn't there? Consider the words of Exodus 24. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So here, it's describing Mount Sinai, this moment where God and and Moses meet face to face, the glory of the Lord is on Sinai for six days, and on the seventh day, God calls to Moses. And here in Mark 9, we have six days after the words of Mark 8, 34 through 9, 1, Jesus ascends this mountain with three men, three of his disciples, and on the seventh day, we have the events of the transfiguration. One more parallel found Uh, from Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Again, let's let's look at the parallels here between Sinai and, and transfiguration. Moses and Jesus, all right? So they, they both ascend this mountain to commune with God. There's, Jesus is praying according to Luke chapter 9. They both ascend with three people. They both are glowing after this moment. And it's pretty clear this passage is connected to Sinai, right? And yet there, there are a number of parallels here between the transfiguration and Sinai. There's one key difference that is more significant than any of them yet. And that is why Moses is shining. Why is Jesus shining? So why is Moses shine? Well, according to to Exodus 34, it's because he stood in the presence of God, right? He stands in the presence of God, and God's presence, God's glory is so great and marvelous and amazing that to be in his presence, he begins to reflect that glory. He soaks in God's glory and he, he radiates it forth as a reflection of God's glory. Now ask yourself, why does Jesus radiate light as well? Where does his light here in the transfiguration comes from, come from? It doesn't come from being in God's presence. Mark makes that very clear. Matthew, uh, his parallel, Matthew chapter 17, actually describes what it was like Uh, for Jesus to um, be exuding this light and this glory. It's not just his clothes. Mark 17, verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Where does this light of Jesus come from? Well, consider the words of Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. The Psalms describe God as as the one who clothes himself here in white. And where does this radiating light of Jesus come from? Well, it comes from himself. Just like God in the Old Testament 
radiates light. He clothes himself in light. Jesus does the exact same thing here in the transfiguration. He's not Moses. He is God himself. Here's what's happening at the, at the transfiguration. Jesus simply just reveals himself as he truly is. He's just revealing himself as he truly is. He's fully human, but he's also fully God. It's a bit early for Christmas carols, but I think the language of, of Hark the Herald Angels Sing actually really helps us to, to put words to what is taking place here. Many of us are familiar with the, this Christmas carol, but do we ever consider the words that we're singing? Second verse, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleases man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That first phrase there, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. It's a, it's a statement to say, look, Jesus is veiled. He's, he's somewhat hidden in flesh. It's God hidden in the flesh. Look at him. And that's exactly what this passage is describing, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is fully man and yet also fully God. When Jesus becomes human, he doesn't cease to be God. He's still fully God. And yet, the glory of God is hidden in his human flesh. To use the language of, of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the, the glory of God is veiled in his humanity. It's not obliterated, but it is obscured. His glory is veiled. It's hidden from the eyes of his disciples. But here, for these three disciples, he pulls back the veil and he gives them a glimpse of who he really is. John Calvin from the 1500s describes the transfiguration as, quote, a temporary exhibition of his glory. A temporary exhibition of his glory. I love that description. He pulls back the veil. He unveils himself so that his disciples can see him as he truly is. Here's the primary difference between Moses and Jesus if we're looking at these parallels between Sinai and the transfiguration. Moses reflects the glory of the God he encounters on the mountain. He reflects it. Jesus emanates the glory of God. He radiates the glory of God because he has temporarily pulled back the veil of his glory for these three disciples. Moses is the moon, shines bright, but only because he is a reflection of something that is even brighter and even more powerful and even more glorious Jesus is the Son, the S-U-N, because He is who He is. He, he exhibits, He exudes light because of who He is. He radiates the glory of God. As we began this section, I, I said that this is the unveiling of Jesus' glory. And what a glory that must have been to see. Let's keep looking uh, verses 4 through 8. See, Mark not only makes the connections between Sinai and the transfiguration, but he also wants to make conclusions based off of that. And so let's consider here in these verses Jesus' glory in light of the Old Testament, starting in verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So it's not enough for Jesus to be emanating this glorious light, but now we see that Jesus is actually having a conversation with two heroes of the Old Testament. They descend from heaven, they begin to speak with Jesus. Luke actually fills in the blank about what they were talking about. They were talking about Jesus' upcoming exodus is the literal word. Another parallel here between the Sinai and Transfiguration experiences. Jesus' upcoming exodus, and a not-so-subtle connection to this salvation that uh, thousands of years previous, God had, had saved his people from slavery to Egypt, and how God is now, Jesus' uh, his exodus, he's, he's about to save God's people from slavery here to sin. And they're talking about the cross and there's so much that we could cover here, but I just want to hit a couple highlights 
We've already made the connection here between Moses and, and, and Jesus and, and the transfiguration, but I want to just mention one more thing about Moses. Moses, if you're up to date on your Bible trivia, Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible called The Law. The first five books are called The Law. And because of this, Jesus, or, excuse me, Moses is, is oftentimes associated with the law itself. He's associated with God's covenant with the people of Israel. And near the end of his life, Moses actually prophecies that there is going to be a day sometime in the future where someone will come after him that God's people must listen to and obey. And this prophet will be even greater than him. Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, throughout the Old Testament, this prophecy is partially fulfilled time and time and time and time again with all of the prophets of the Old Testament, men and women that God rose up to, to declare God's word. And yet, they still had not had a prophet like Moses. And people longed for this prophet to one day come. Speaking of prophets, Elijah is also there speaking with Jesus. Just like, Eli, uh, just like Moses is associated with the first five books of the Bible, the law, Elijah is associated with the prophetic books of the Bible, a significant chunk of the Bible. The, these books call God's people to repent and, and to return to him, to return to this covenant that God has made with them, and to do so by listening to and obeying the law. And just again, pause, take a step back, and just think about this moment, how incredible it is. Here is Jesus. He's radiating this blinding light of glory. He's speaking about his upcoming crucifixion with, with these two men. Uh, he's speaking about how he is going to deliver people from their sins with the, the person who, who led the, the people out of the first exodus, this person who was associated with God's first covenant with the people of Israel, not this first, but, but one of the covenants with the people of Israel. And he's also speaking about that with this person who is synonymous with the prophets who, who continuously call God's people to return, to repent, and return to that covenant. And then Peter speaks up. I really feel bad for Peter. Peter is terrified. The text tells us Peter is terrified. Some people, when they're terrified, they freeze up. and Some people, they begin to ramble. Peter falls into the second category very clearly. Luke actually tells us that, that Peter doesn't even know what he's talking about. He's making it up. He's shooting from the hip here as he is talking to Jesus and Elijah and Moses. And as Peter is speaking, this cloud appears on the mountain. And the cloud in the Old Testament nearly always symbolized the glory of God among his people. This presence of God ascends on, descends on the mountain, and a voice comes out of the cloud. Luke, again, tells us, uh, and Matthew, I think, too, they, they tell us that, that it actually interrupts Peter while he is, is speaking. And what does it say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And on one level, this is simply God just silencing Peter's babbling. But in another level, it means something far, far deeper. So we turn our eyes to verses 4 through 8. I said that these verses say something about Jesus' glory in light of the Old Testament. And what is it? Well, the fact that, that Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus, they're conversing with Jesus, but then at the end of this section, they disappear. And Jesus is just left on his own with the disciples. It's a clear picture that Jesus' glory is greater. Glory is greater. His majesty is greater than the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews says something similar. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What's more, it also points to the fulfillment of the Old Testament is, 
found here in Jesus. Moses is the leader of the Exodus. Elijah, this person who's called people back to God, they're talking with Jesus about the salvation that's about to come through Jesus. The law was given to point us to Jesus. The prophets were, were called, calling people to, to return to God so that they might be ready to hear the good news of this new salvation that is found in Jesus. And what does all that say? about Jesus' glory. Well, Jesus' glory is, is the pinnacle of all the, that God has done in the Old Testament. It all points us to Jesus. It is all fulfilled in Jesus. What's more, in the first Sinai, God makes this covenant with his people. He gives them the law and says, do this and you will live. He gives the people instructions on how to build the tabernacle and says, if you would have me dwell among you, this is what you must do. But now we have this second Sinai, if you will. And here on the second Sinai, God is about to make another covenant with his people. And it's no longer through the law, but now it's through the blood of his son. No longer does he say, do this and you will live. Now he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No longer does he give the people instructions on how to build a tabernacle for his glory to dwell among them, but now he says, because I have given up my son, God's people, you can live with me forever. What does Jesus' glory say in light of the Old Testament? What is, what is Jesus' glory in the light of the Old Testament from this passage? Well, Honestly, the Old Testament pales in comparison to the glory of Jesus. But this passage doesn't just speak about Jesus' glory that is found in his, his majesty. It also speaks about his glory that is found on the cross. And that is what we see at the end of this passage. It, the passage ends with the disciples and Jesus descending the mountain. Mount Hermon, I mentioned, it's a, it's a large mountain. It would have taken a long, long time to, to get back down this mountain. So the disciples have plenty of time to process what they just saw. And the disciples are processing and discussing what they have just seen. And here we catch a glimpse of Jesus' glory, but this time in relationship to the cross. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. As they descend, Jesus tells his disciples to keep this silent until after the resurrection, until after he rises from the dead. And this message of the exalted Christ, Jesus wants to make sure. Yes, he is the exalted Christ, but it cannot be separated from the truth that he is also the crucified Christ. His glory cannot be separated from the cross. And Jesus, he mentions the, the resurrection and, and these, these questions that come up in the disciples' mind because a resurrection it necessitates death. And I don't really blame the disciples here because if I just witness what they witnessed and Jesus' glory on display and then Jesus says something about his death, the last thing on my mind after witnessing that is, oh yeah, Jesus is about to die. And so they have these questions and they don't understand what Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they keep those questions to themselves. But then they have this other question uh, that's, that's raised by, by seeing Elijah. And they ask Jesus about this scribal tradition. The scribal tradition said that Elijah has to come before the Messiah does. And here's the reasoning. It's, it's, it actually is, is, it makes a lot of sense. They know that Jesus is the Messiah. Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Peter confesses it. Jesus does nothing to contradict that claim. And yet, Jesus has been all around longer than Elijah has. Elijah just appeared months or even years into Jesus' ministry here, and, and now he only shows up to three people on top of a mountain, well after Jesus' ministry has, has already started. So how is it that Elijah must first return before the Messiah if Jesus is the Messiah and he actually came first? 
It's a question that's it's a good question. It's based off the Old Testament book of Malachi. Malachi written, uh, last book of the Bible. It's, it's written uh, among the people in, in their return to the land of, of Israel after being in, in exile. And, uh, and they realize that all of God's promises that he's made to them, uh, they're not fully realized. The glory that God has been promising them, what they are experiencing is just a, a pale shadow and so they say, hey, God, there's got to be something greater. And, and, and Malachi is this prophet who's speaking into that situation, and he assures the people of Israel that, yes, this is not what God has been referring to when he said he's going to restore all things, that there is going to be a time where something greater and more beautiful is coming. And so here in, in the book of Malachi, we have this promise from God that his, his presence, the Lord, will return and establish his kingdom. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, just the first half. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord will one day return to his temple, but before he does that, a messenger will prepare the way. Well, who is this messenger? Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So here's this prophecy, this biblical precedence uh, for the scribal tradition that Elijah is going to come before the Messiah. But the scribes and most of Israel believed that that meant Elijah was going to come in glory. And Jesus says, no, that's not the case. Elijah does come. Elijah did come. But they killed him. Matthew makes explicit what Jesus is alluding to here. Matthew 17. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the Elijah figure that comes to prepare the way for Jesus and the kingdom of God. And what happens to this Elijah? What happens to John the Baptist? Far from coming in glory, he is killed. And notice Jesus here, he makes a connection between their spoken question, why do the scribes say Elijah has to come first, with their unspoken question, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about rising from the dead and, from, and by implication is death? Elijah has come, not in glory, but in obscurity, and then he is killed. And the same thing is true for the Messiah. He has come not in glory, but in obscurity, and he will suffer many things. He will be rejected, and ultimately, he will be killed. The transfiguration declares that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And he has come to do exactly what he intends to do. So as we wrap up our time in this passage just consider five implications from the truth of this text. First, if Jesus is exactly who he says he is, then he is deserving of all of our worship. He is deserving of all of our praise, of all of our obedience. The transfiguration is a mysterious passage, no doubt about that, but it is a glorious passage because it temporarily unveils the glory of the Son. For anyone who reads this passage... We can see what Jesus is actually like. This revelation of Jesus' glory, it's temporary. And yet, revelation reveals that the glory of Jesus will be on display for all of eternity in the new creation. When you encounter Jesus, it will be this Jesus. This risen and exalted Christ. And that he is deserving of all of our worship. Second, if Jesus is exactly who he says he is, then we must not only come to grips with Jesus' glory, but also with Jesus' cross. The kingdom of Jesus' glory comes, but it only comes after the cross, after his suffering, after his death. And what's more, if the king must suffer, we should not be surprised when we face suffering in our lives. Suffering and estrangement 
not a sign of, of God's curse upon us. It's not a sign that God has abandoned us. In God's wise plan, He allows us to endure hardship as we press on for the crown of glory, just like Jesus did. Third, if Jesus is exactly who He says He is, then not only is the entire New Testament about Jesus, but also the entire Old Testament is about Him as well. Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end, Scripture tells us about the all-surpassing glory of Jesus. It is not just, he's not just a new Moses, this person who meets with God and reflects his glory. Jesus is the God who, who veiled himself in flesh, who takes on flesh, and his glory is his, and it is no one else's. What's more, this way of salvation for God's people is no longer found in a tabernacle or a temple, but it is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Fourth, if Jesus is exactly who he says he is, then it is unthinkable to disobey the words that come from the voice speaking out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The exalted Jesus is worthy of all our obedience, of all our allegiance because of his glory, but not just because of his glory, but also because of his great love for us, which is on display in the cross. C.T. Studd, a missionary in the early 1900s, once wrote this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If God himself died for us, then there is no sacrifice that he asks us to make that is too great. Jesus calls all of us to die to self, all of us to pick up our crosses, all of us to follow him. He calls all of us to live a life of allegiance to him, to not to kneel to any other throne, including ourselves, but only to kneel to his throne. And if Jesus is exactly who he says he is, that is the only right response, is to listen to him. It's obedience. And finally, if Jesus is exactly who he says he is, then we can rest confident no matter what trials come our way. The passage that comes immediately before this, Mark 8, 34 through 38, asks much of us. It asks us to die to self. It asks us to nail the old self to the cross each and every day. And as we asked last week, the question that naturally comes from this hard ask is, is it worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Is it worth following Jesus who demands everything from us? If we would follow him, that we would give up everything for him. And last week we saw it was worth it because your life is greater than, of a greater value than anything in the world and Jesus is of greater value even than your life. Now let's imagine that you have surrendered your life to Jesus, you have committed your life to, to him, that you have said, I'm going to pick up my cross daily, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to deny myself, no matter what the cost. But as life goes on, the struggles of life continue, and you begin to find that not only does following God not make your life any easier, but oftentimes this idea of denying yourself makes it a whole lot harder. This idea of following Jesus actually means that sometimes you are ostracized. Sometimes you are ridiculed. Sometimes it's even the cause of the hardship that you experience in life. And now a new question creeps in. It's not just, is Jesus worth it? But now it's, can Jesus really deliver? Is Jesus really able to follow through on all of these promises that he has made? Because as I look at my life and it sure seems doubtful. Is Jesus able to deliver? Perhaps a better way of, of wording that question in the, the way that we think today, that the way it creeps into our minds today is not, can Jesus deliver, but what if this is just all a hoax? What if this is all just made up? What if Jesus isn't really God? Should I just throw in the towel? And the transfiguration intentionally takes place right after Jesus asks his disciples to give up everything, to follow him, to show that he is worth everything. Because he is exceedingly glorious, 
but also because he will give up everything to ransom us from sin. The, Jesus is, is exactly who he says he is. He is the fullness of the glory of God. No matter how much hardship you face in this life, no matter how difficult the road before you is, there is a crown of glory that awaits you that just like your king, you must first go to the cross. You must first put to death the old self. But on the other side of that cross is the all-surpassing glory that awaits those who are found in Jesus. The transfiguration is given to us to give confidence that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. That everything he asks of us is light and momentary compared to the crown of glory that awaits those who would follow him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would give us the strength to listen to you, to follow you, even though that means that glory is found on the other side of a cross. Lord, that you would help us each person in here, to deny self, to lay down the, the worship of self, the, the idea that we can just do whatever we want as long as it feels good for us. And that we would turn our affections on you because you are worthy of all our praise and honor, all the glory. Help us, God, to see you for who you truly are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.